0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about this past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed mazmi a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Professor Burkhard Schnabel, He is professor of social anthropology at uh, the Martin Luther University of Halle-Wittenberg. From 2013 to 2020, he was head of the Connectivity in Motion Port Cities of the Indian Ocean Fellows Group at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halle. He is the author of The King's Three Bodies: Essays on Kinship and Ritual, and co-editor of Traveling Past: The Politics of Cultural Heritage in the Indian Ocean world. And today's book is Cargoes in Motion, Materiality and Connectivity Across the Indian Ocean, published by Ohio University Press in 2022. And the book was co-edited along with Professor Julia Verne, who's a professor of cultural geography at Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, where she leads a research group on mobility, materiality, and maritimity, with a focus on the Western Indian Ocean. Her publications include Living, Translocality, Space, Culture, and Economy in Contemporary Swahili Trade, and several articles discussing the Indian Ocean as relational space. Today's uh, book, Cargos in Motion, is uh, an innovative collection of essays that foreground specific cargos as means to understand connectivity and mobility across the Indian Ocean world. Scholars have long appreciated the centrality of trade and commerce and understanding the connectivity and mobility that underpin human experience in the Indian Ocean region. But studies of merchant and commercial activities have paid little attention to the role that cargoes have played in connecting the desperate parts of this vast oceanic world. Drawing from the work of anthropologists, geographers, and historians, Cargos in Motion tells the story of how material objects have informed and continue to shape processes of exchange across the Indian Ocean. By following selected cargos through both space and time, this book makes an important and innovative contribution to Indian Ocean studies. The multidisciplinary approach deepens our understanding of the nature and dynamics of the Indian Ocean world by showing how transoceanic connectivity has been driven not only by economic, social, cultural, and political factors, but also by the materiality of the objects themselves. Welcome, Professor Schnabel, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about the book today.
1: Yes, hello, Ahmed. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to be here. I'm sitting in Germany, I must say. uh, And a little correction, I'm not a professor anymore. I have been retired for a year which makes my life much easier and I can, um, yes, I now have the time to focus on my research more than on teaching and other things. So thank you for introducing my book. Uh, You have said almost everything.
0: Um, And that's quite. We (laughs) we would like uh to learn first about our authors. If you can start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any influential mentors.
1: Yes. Uh, Let me start by saying that I'm a social anthropologist. I studied in Berlin at the Free University from 1976 onwards. So I must apologize that I don't start with my youth and childhood. But uh, yes, uh, it's more interesting. After I studied in Berlin, I went to Oxford and I finished my PhD there with a thesis on the Shilluk of the Southern Sudan. After that, I went back to Germany, to Heidelberg, and I wrote what you call the habilitation as second thesis, uh, which qualifies you to become a professor. That time, I did not continue my work in Africa. But I went to India and I w- wrote a book on the Jungle Kings of uh, Odisha. I'm seeing this because when I became a professor in Halle at the Martin Luther University in 2002, I always wanted to reconnect my both fields of research, Africa and India. And so I looked at the map and I saw the Indian Ocean, to put it uh, somewhat... Uh, blankly. So I decided to start a new field of research from 2002 onwards uh, as a professor uh, and a co-founder of an Institute of Social Anthropology. So I had a lot of possibilities there to look at the Indian Ocean. I just wanted to see how these two continents, Africa and India, are connected. So it was from the beginning, it was more about Mobilities, it was about transmaritime exchanges. And this was all captured in a program which I was granted by the Max Planck Society and the Max Planck Institute in Halle, uh, which was called, uh, you mentioned it, Ahmed, Connectivity in Motion, Hot Cities of the Indian Ocean. If I may say something about this.
0: Yeah, yes, sure.
1: Yes, it starts with the methodological side. This is important in the German context. This is quite a competitive uh, program where you have to show not only what you want to do empirically, but whether you have an innovative uh, methodological side. So connectivity and motion had to stand in the front and port cities of the Indian Ocean in the back. Uh, even though it is quite clear that the Indian Ocean region is the uh, framework of my research. And within this term of connectivity and motion, the emphasis really is on motion. A lot of people these days are doing connectivity, and it has become quite a fashionable term. Even when you buy a Mercedes-Benz in Germany or open a new bank account, they promise you connectivity. Connectivity. But what I want to emphasize is the motion side, the mobility. Doing Indian Ocean studies, I feel, is contributing to the emerging field of mobility studies. And in this context, at looking how things, in the widest possible sense of the term, are transported and move across the Indian Ocean in all directions. looking at the transformations, translations if you want, which these things experience, not only in value, commercial value, but also in meaning and function. So this is the background against which the book, which we discussed today, Cargo's In Motion, uh, has been uh, developed and produced.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Can you tell us something about the emphasis for this volume? Why was it needed? what would it contribute to the current literature uh, on the Indian Ocean? Um, you mentioned something on, mo- uh, on connectivity and mobility and new methodological approaches. Um, so can you tell us something about how this volume came about to intervene in this regard?
1: Yes, so this volume is really the third in a series of volumes which came out of conferences that I organized in Halle and then in Berlin, uh, financed by this Max Planck Fellowship Program. The first one was on Island Hubs in the Indian Ocean World. It's called Connectivity in Motion, Island Hubs in the Indian Ocean World. And I edited this together with Edward Alpers, Ned Alpers. It was published in 2018 and appeared with Paul Griff. The second one, uh, one year later, it's called Travelling Paths, and it's about the politics of cultural heritage in the Indian Ocean world. I edited this together with Stan Sen. and Cargo's Emotion is the third one. Uh, as far as conference volumes are concerned, with all these uh, titles you can already see, again, the emphasis on motion and the methodological background against which research is taken place, but you can also see that one can focus on different kinds of things, and for this volume, we decided to focus on cargos. Cargos, in the widest sense of the terms in our definition, are things which are transported or which are moving, so we did not choose the term commodities, for example. But wanted to emphasize on the materiality of the things and on the fact that they are moving from one place to another. And during these travels, again, changed their values, changed their meanings and functions. So yes. this is mm-hmm. the background.
0: You introduced the volume, uh, Cargos in the Indian Ocean World, a the Thematic and Methodological Introduction. And in your introduction, uh, you posed the question, how exactly can one approach the study of cargoes and the materiality of connectivity in motion across the Indian Ocean world more deeply? So how did these uh, chapters uh, tackle this question in their different geographies and and spaces?
1: Yes. So we asked the authors to concentrate on one particular cargo and follow the journeys of these cargoes, journeys through time and also uh, through space. There are basically two larger social theories behind this idea. The one is the very new uh, social life of things. People will know that this uh, uh, refers to Apadurai's uh, edited volume, uh, Social Life of Things. The other big social theory somehow turns this around. It's uh, the actor network theory, the so-called ANT, which focuses and emphasizes the, if you want, thingy life of social life. Uh, so in those cases, these two approaches connect because they put more emphasis on things which are no longer inanimate, But which have an agency of their own. These things can and do uh, change and determine uh, what is going on in social life. As a matter of fact, if you follow actor network theory, uh, social life is not possible without the materiality which uh, informs it. So, this was the basic idea behind it. The contributions in our volume uh, are very much empirically grounded. And so it's not a sort of theoretical volume, but we wanted to show uh, against the background of what I've just said, how the Indian ocean world has not only transported things in a sort of passive way but how these things uh, shaped connectivity in the ocean when we come back to this uh, term of mine.
0: Yes, and the uh, chapters are 12 substantive chapters divided in three parts, thematic yeah. parts. The first part, Cargos in the Making. And the first chapter is uh, Brilliant Cargos, Pulse, Shell, and Exchanges of Marine Products in the Indian Ocean by Pedro Machado. The second is The History of Southern Red Sea Salt in the Indian Ocean Trade by Stephen Searles. And the third is The Flow of uh, bohea, The Tea Trade in the Indian Ocean World from the 18th to the 20th century by Kunbing Jiao. And the fourth is The Journey of Cloves, Historical Trajectories, and New Dynamics of Organic Labeling on Zanzibar by Rupert uh, Nofer and uh, Hannah Pilgrim. So, in the first part, we find that the emphasis here is on, uh, let's say, the raw material, the production parts of it, the extraction part of it, and we can capture the cargoes are uh, in motion by through the, the, the process of production. So uh, how do you find these chapters are addressing uh, the theme of cargos in the making? Why should we pay attention? to this particular initial phase of making the cargo.
1: Yes, uh, maybe I can add uh, that the second part is on board, so it goes on to another phase, in the life history of uh, cargo, and the third one is cargo's in use, so it's uh, the, if you want, the consumption phase. Having said this, uh, these three parts show that we do not just want to look at the social life of things and not only at the social histories or cultural histories of things, but we also want to put an emphasis on the life histories, on the biographies of things. And in this respect, uh, it is important to see that these things which are on the move are not commodities from the very start, they uh, they have a life phase before becoming a commodity. This is the production phase, if you want, and very often they also have a life phase after consumed as a commodity. There's one example, if I may jump in the book, but uh, this example may clarify what I want to say. Uh, the example of elephant tusks. It's an uh, Contribution by Karl-Heinz Kohl, a professor of social anthropology from Frankfurt. These elephant tasks, to illustrate what I want to say, have a life before commoditization. They are just the parts of the body of an elephant. Then they are sent across the Indian Ocean. In this article, it is described from India to Indonesia. So they become a commodity in this uh, phase when they are sold in on the small island of Flores in Indonesia, they are leaving the commodity phase only to be stored away as what Annette Weiner has called inalienable possessions, and sometimes bright prices. So they are leaving the cycle of commodities and enter into a enclosed local cycle. So, what I want to say is we also look at different phases in the life, in the biography of a cargo, and want to see how things are changing there. And the first part, Ahmed, which you mentioned, somehow looks at this uh, free commodity phase in the life of a thing, and also at the phase in which it becomes commoditized, and produced.
0: Right, and it's really helpful to follow this journey, um, and you've mentioned the the second part and the third part, and in the second part, uh, we have the chapters of Giraffes and Elephants, Circulation of Exotic Animals in the long durée History of the Indian Ocean World by Tan Sen, and then Cattle on the Hoof, the Mozambique Channel, uh, Provisioning Trade in the 19th Century by Edward Alpers. And then uh, Paper Cargo's Mobile Histories, a view from the 20th century Dow by Fahad Ahmed Bishara. And the uh, fourth is Enduring Measure of 12,000 uh, cowries, the materialities and life histories of a well-traveled marine product by Eva Maria Noll. So uh, in the second part, we we, we capture the, the cargo uh, on board. So, Here, the ocean maybe would be more centered and thinking about how the cargo is moving from uh, point A to point B. And by crossing the ocean, the cargo takes on uh, a new life phase, let's say, uh, and its journey. So can we think of different ways uh, and studying cargo versus cargos on land and cargos uh, on sea? Uh,
1: Yes. I mean especially in the chapters where animals are transported, one uh, gets an idea of how difficult it was to begin with to get these animals on board. Do you see what I mean? Uh, It's not just carrying them. There are giraffes, there are elephants, there are horses. And once they are on board of how to stabilize them so that they are not just uh, when when you have storms and everything uh, falling overboard and uh, keeping them alive. So that is, of course, a question which is very important in the early times of what I call transplantations, when plants like sugar canes or cloths were transported from one place to another and how to keep them alive. So. Uh, In a sense, this on-board section is again focusing on a very important part of mobility. Uh, Very often this is also neglected in the Indian Ocean studies. Uh, They look at where does a commodity thing come from and where does it go to and what happens in between the in-between and between the trans. If you want transport, transformation, translation, transit, uh, is not uh, giving enough uh, yes emphasis. So this is uh, what this section called on board may be uh, yes adding uh, a new dimension to this.
0: Indeed. Uh, Ara Perfumes and the Indian Ocean Trade in Animal-Derived Aromatics, The Case of uh, Sivit by uh, Hannah Schoning, And When Gecko Tales travel from Island Forests to Laboratories, From Materiality to Information and Scientific Cargo by uh, Lisa Jenny Craig. And From Cargo to uh, Inalienable Possessions, Beads and Beadwork in Penang, by uh, Marike uh, Pampus, and then the last one is The Elephant with the Seven Tusks, Maritime Commodities in East Indonesian, Clan Houses, and marriage Cycles by Carl Heinz Kohl. So, in this part, we, uh, we are observing how cargos are being consumed as commodities. Uh, we are also looking at cargos uh, through bioprospecting and moving from the forest to the lab. We're looking at um, the production of very classic, uh, important uh, commodity in the Indian Ocean, which is uh, beads. And then we move to the elephants, which you've talked about. Um, So thinking about consumption cultures, um, how can we think about uh, cargo and motion through this phase? Uh, Particularly, do we find uh, cargo being removed from its context, which we initially, Encountered, let's say, in and that first part of the book to this part where car- cargos are becoming something else, maybe taking on a third life uh, as a, as a consumable uh, thing rather than as something in context. Or do you find it uh, really moving with the baggage of, of 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 its journey? How do you find the consumption uh, changing the the meaning of cargo in this context? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Uh... Consumption, of course, is a term which we don't really use, but uh, I must admit that uh, at the first glance, uh, we have the threefold distinction, production, distribution, consumption, which is uh, quite common in economic anthropology, for example. Uh, And of course, uh, the things which we are uh, following all end up in one way or another with people who want to do something and maybe consume them. What I said before is that not always is consumption the last phase in the life history of a cargo, very often a commodity, and the beads in Penang, which you mentioned, or the elephant tusks in Indonesia. They are decommoditized and, if you wish, sacralized. I here refer to the important second essay in Appadurai's Social Life of Things by Kopitov, where he is advocating a biographical look at things. So they are decommoditized and uh, then uh, put into another use, it's not so much a commercial use anymore it's not commodity but here it's a socio cultural use right wells or some ritual use which then uh, starts a new life for the thing once it reaches penang or uh, Flores, for example so uh, this is uh, what happens if a thing is leaving the commodity phase. It's not just consumed, but it may start a new life, which we wanted to emphasize.
0: Right. Now, I would like to ask you about the disciplines of the different scholars. Most of them are historians, and you are an anthropologist reading historian's work. What do you think historians should pay attention to uh, drawing from the field of anthropology? And what can anthropologists learn from Historical, having historical depth, and drawing on historical methods and their uh, ethnic and in their ethnographic work. Yes, so
1: all in all, what we are doing here is belonging to the field of Indian Ocean studies, and you are right that history and various area studies are uh, dominant in this field, but uh, not only in this volume. You can see that it's social anthropology, it's history, but it's also archaeology. And uh, the co-editor of this volume, Julia Werner, is an anthropogeographer. So uh, all these disciplines come together and need to come together. But uh, referring to your special question about the relation of social anthropology and history, uh, I am Unfortunately, I must say, one of the few anthropologists are becoming less and less uh, anthropologists who is uh, looking at history as the favorite neighboring discipline. Uh, anthropologists these tends these days that you know, or tend to be sociologists and political scientists instead and concentrating on contemporary affairs. I always felt that understanding contemporary social life, society, it is absolutely necessary to look at the history which has made a society what it is. History or better, historical imagination is also important these days, where you have the cult of heritage, as you know, everything is becoming heritageized these days, and so Uh, one has to look at how people themselves, or the stories people themselves, tell themselves about themselves, what are their historical imaginations, how do they understand themselves, how they came to be what they are today. So, when I started or studied social anthropology in Oxford as a PhD student, This was at the Institute of Evans Pritchard. Evans Pritchard is one of the founders of modern social anthropology, and he was a big advocate of a historical approach. He said anthropologists have to become historians or be nothing at all. During my years, also as a professor, I had many uh, great uh, colleagues from the discipline of history, And I always told them that they also have to look at this the other way around. I feel that historians have to become social anthropologists or look at things also in anthropological ways in order to understand what was going on or is going on in history. So these two disciplines for me are very important and cannot be without each other.
0: I couldn't agree more with you. Um, in reading these chapters and organizing them uh, did you come across any surprises any new things that made you wonder that I would like to get in this rabbit hole and learn more about it Uh, would you like to share some of that
1: of course uh, I'm always uh, surprised when uh, I still do a lot of uh, new research on Indian Ocean matters and I feel that it's always eye opening to look at new things and Again, we concentrated on different cargos, and we had experts on each of these cargos and different regions and different histories, and I feel that this is the greatest challenge uh, in the Indian Ocean Studies to have two perspectives. The one perspective is to be very empirical and very precise and very concrete as far as one region or one one region or one historical facet is concerned. And the second perspective and challenge is to connect all these very detailed and precise uh, views into a larger picture, the picture of the Indian Ocean world as a whole, during the whole of its history. This is uh, very demanding, and it's always surprising to find new little pictures, and but it's also very uh, yeah, challenging to put all these little uh, but very expertise used together into a larger role. For this book, I think uh, we managed and succeeded to put a frame in which many different cargos, you mentioned all of them, Ahmed, and the listener will have heard how different these are, but to put them into one frame, into one methodological approach, so that the whole thing makes a volume which is uh, comprehensive and cohesive uh, and which can mm-hmm. add a new dimension and a new perspective to an Indian Ocean studies. Uh, maybe one thing which I may add uh, to show the perspective of the small things and the short periods to look at, and the large ocean. I've just uh, published a book. It's called Small Island, Large Ocean, Mauritius in the Indian Ocean World. It will come out with Routledge this month. Uh, but it shows that anthropologists can, and this is my anthropological contribution, anthropologists can contribute to big questions like globalization, for example, not although they concentrate on small places and small islands in this case, but because they do so. So this is uh, the approach uh, which anthropologists can add, and uh, but one should never forget the larger picture in which all this uh, comes together.
0: Congrats on your new publication. Can you say something about how, if you would write a chapter in this volume about Mauritius, what can scholars draw from uh, the Mauritian context in the study of cargos? Yes. Uh,
1: one thing which is missing in this cargos volume, deliberately missing, is human cargos. Slaves, indentured laborers, cruelies uh, as they were called. And uh, Mauritius is, of course, an island where slavery and coolitude, as some people call it, uh, was very much uh, not only uh, practice, but it was also Mauritius was a laboratory to find out how, uh, for example, indentured labor can work. So Mauritius was not only a model of but also a model for uh, plantation economy in the uh, early 19th century to the early 20th century. So this is where a small island like Mauritius can show things which are important for developments and practices in the Indian Ocean world at large.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Argos and Motion. who would you hope will read this book? And what sort of impact would you like it to have?
1: Yes, of course, as an author, you want that everyone reads it. But uh, I mentioned the various disciplines. uh, Anthropology, history, archaeology, uh, geography and people who are interested in areas and regions from East Africa to Indonesia and uh, beyond the Indian Ocean world. And my definition is uh, defined by the longitude or by the movements, and so sometimes the Indian Ocean world in its history is going up to Lisbon or Amsterdam or up to Shanghai. Uh, it's going beyond the geographical ocean. So all people who are interested in a sense in global history and look at global history as a sort of alternative to a Western perspective should also be interested in looking how uh, things were handled and how uh, events were enacted in the indian ocean world
0: great i hope so too and i really would like to add that the book contains very beautiful maps about the discussed uh, cargoes uh in this volume and figures in the different chapters with extensive biographies which are very useful for scholars uh thank you so much for giving us an overview of the volume and i hope the readers will go and pick up the book to learn more about the different chapters um I would like to share something with the listeners that uh, I've met uh, Professor Burkhard uh in Sharjah, at the African Institute, uh, during a conference on mobilities and immobilities in the Indian Ocean, where he gave a keynote. And I would like to ask you, uh, what was your impression and what are your thoughts about having uh, academic activities pertaining to the Indian Ocean, uh, around the Indian Ocean, uh, what is missing and what is needed to move forward in this regard yes so
1: thank you for reminding me of that conference in december last year i very much enjoyed it and i think we all enjoyed it because for most of us it was one of the first conferences again after two or three years of corona restrictions uh, everyone who was there has had the experience of how fruitful it is not only to write books or to read books and to sit in video conferences, but to personally meet people and discuss. And I really enjoyed that conferences, that conference because it gave me and us the opportunity to probe out new ideas. It, I like to be... Uh, provocative in conferences uh, in order to uh, see how people may think in the same direction, but also may contradict me. And I feel that it was especially rewarding for me, at least, to be in Shaza, uh, because I've never been to Dubai, Shaza, in uh, that area before, I've been to Oman, but. It gave me an impression about how the Indian Ocean world has changed. I was, of course, very much impressed. If someone goes to Dubai for the first time, uh, I'm coming from old Europe. uh, One realizes uh, that in Europe, things are going much slower than in Asia, for example. Two months later, I went to a conference in Singapore, my impression was the same. So I feel that uh, meeting people personally, discussing with them in a place which has a connection to what one is talking about is very rewarding. And um, I can only hope for everyone else that uh, the chances to go to such conferences brilliant be organized by the way uh, in Sad, by uh, the African Center and by uh, the organizers uh, was
0: just oh, yes, was a good thing. Indeed, I, I am <laughs> quite reminiscent about these days and I wish for other opportunities to meet other scholars around the Indian Ocean and studying the region. Well, we've taken a lot of your time and we always ask the final traditional question, which is about future projects. I know that you've just published a new book, uh, but is there something on the back burner or something you hope to work on in the future?
1: Yes. Uh, before I come to that, may I just uh, also add uh, that it was a big pleasure to meet you, Ahmed. You were local and when we had our very important and interesting uh trips into the countryside, I had the privilege to sit not far from you and to learn from what you said about the area. And so that was also very rewarding. Now, what to do next in my life? Uh, At the beginning, I told you that I am now retired, which is uh, all in all a very, uh, yeah, rewarding situation because now I have the time to write all the books I always wanted to write. I also have the time to read books, which I always wanted to read, but uh, could not do so because of all the obligations which I have as a professor and director and all that. So I am actually sitting at a house near the Baltic Sea, a very nice area, and I enjoyed to write a book on the Indian Ocean world from the beginning to the future, if you want. So it's my, what you call, opus magnum, and it will take years. I have given lectures on almost all aspects in the history and social anthropology of the Indian Ocean world, and now I wish to draw these lectures together. It's also, for me personally, now Yeah, it's a good situation that I wish to write this book in German. Most of my life, of my academic life, I have been, of course, publishing in English and uh, communicating with people in English. But this book, which I'm writing now, is not meant really for an academic audience or public, uh, for readers, but for people who are interested, who are intelligent, but who don't really have uh, sort of uh, big knowledge in the field, and so this is also quite challenging to write a book which is not for other experts, but for intelligent and interested people. Uh, popular science uh, is not easy, and I like to do it. So. Uh, it will take some years. The one or the other scientific article will come out. But my main project these days is on well, this book.
0: That sounds amazing. And I bet it's every Indian Ocean scholar's dream to be by the ocean and write such a book. I wish you all the best with that. And I look forward to reading your new book. Uh, thank you so much for giving us this time to talk about the book today. And uh, thank you for the listeners for listening to today's episode, in which we explored Argos in Motion, Materiality and Connectivity Across the Indian Ocean, published by Ohio University Press in 2022. This is your host, Ahmed El Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.